Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast. This is AJ's Classic Crime Stories. And we're going to be doing this series on the original writings of uh, Sir Conan Doyle for the uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. Now, the book I'm reading here today is called The Study in Scarlet. And I'm sure most of you know what that means. I'll give you a hint. It's definitely the color. But um, the book was written first in 1886, and then it was published in 1887. Now, the reason why I'm able to read these books, because of the uh, um, public domain laws, anything before that was written for 1928, you can read for any kind of a purpose you, feel, you see fit without getting any kind of sort of uh, hot water, we'll say, for lack of a better word. So, let's begin. Do you, this is the introduction of the Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, the famous duo. Chapter 1, A Study in Scarlet. In the year 1878, I took my degree of Doctor of Medicine of the University of London and proceeded to Netley to go through the course prescribed for surgeons in the army. Having completed my studies there, I was duly attached to the 5th Northumberland Fusilier as an assistant surgeon. The regiment was stationed in India at the time, and before I could join, the 2nd Afghan War had broken out. On landing at Bombay, I learned that my corps had advanced through the passes and was already deep in enemy's country. I followed, however, with many other officers who were in the same situation as myself and succeeded in reaching Kandahar in safety, where I found my regiment and at once entered upon the new duties. So this individual is going right full into war here. And we're not sure who the individual yet, and we're, we're, we're going to find out very soon. The campaign brought honors and promotion to many, but for me, it had not, for me it had nothing to do but misfortune and disaster. So things went south really quick for this fella. I was removed from my brigade and tasked to the the Berkshires, with whom I served at the fatal Battle of Mewant. There I was struck on the shoulder by a Giselle bullet, which shattered the bone and grazed my subclavian artery. I should have fallen to the hands of the murderous Gazis, and had not been for the devotion and the courage shown by Murray, my orderly, who threw me across a pack horse and succeeded in bringing me to safety back to the British lines. Worn with pain and weak from the prolonged hardships which I had undergone, I was removed with a great train of wounded sufferers to the base hospital at Peshawar. Here I rallied and already improved so far as to be able to walk about the wards and even to bask a little upon the veranda when I was struck down by enteric fever that cursed our Indian possessions. For months my life was despair of, despaired of and when at last came to myself became convalescent. I was so weak and emancipated that a medical board determined that not a day should be lost in sending me back to England. So, in other words, it's time for him to go home. I was dispatched accordingly on a troop ship Orontis and landed a month later at Portsmouth Jetty with my health irreversibly ruined, but with permission from a paternal government to spend the next nine months in attempting to improve it. So, basically, he's in the care of the English government right now. And so we move forward with that. He's coming. He's at home. And let's see what, what happens next.
I had neither kin nor kith nor kin in England. It was therefore as free as the air, or as free as an income of eleven shillings and sixpence a day were permit a man to be. Under such circumstances, I naturally gravitated to London, that great cesspool to which all the loungers and idlers of the empire are irresistibly drained. There I stayed for some time at a private hotel in the Strand, leading a comfortless, meaningless existence, spending such money as I had considerably more free than I ought to. So alarming did the state of my finances become that I soon realized that I must either leave the metropolis or risicate somewhere in the country, or that I must make a complete alteration in my lifestyle of living. Choosing the latter alternative, I began making up my mind to leave the hotel, take out my quarters at some less pretentious and less expensive domicile. So he's on the lookout. He's leaving where he is because he just simply can't afford to live there. On the very day that I had come to this conclusion, I was standing at a criterion bar when someone tapped me on the shoulder. Turning around, I recognized young Stanford, who had been a dresser under me at Bart's. The sight of a friendly face in the great wilderness of London is a pleasant thing indeed to a lonely man. In old days, Stamford had never been a particular crony of mine, but now I hailed him with enthusiasm, and he in turn appeared to be delighted to see me. It's like in a situation where, like when you start a new job, for example, and uh, you go into the new work, and you're a little nervous, you don't know a soul, you don't know what to do, you don't know where this is or where that is, you're really confused. And then you look around the corner, see someone you recognize, and there's a connection right there. Then a lot of your worries just disappear right away. Because you have that connection, now you feel like you know something, and this fellow can help you out. Takes all that uh, anxiety away. This is exactly what happened here. In the exuberance of the, my joy, I asked him to lunch with me at the Holborn, and we started off together in the hansom. Whatever have you been doing with yourself, Watson? Aha! Let's stop there for one second. So now we know who this, this fella is. It's Dr. Watson. And his friend is a colleague, I imagine, from school and working in the medical profession. Whatever you're doing with yourself, Watson, he asked in an undisguised wonder. As we rattled through the crowd of London streets, you're as thin as a lathe and as brown as a nut. I gave him a short sketch of my adventures and had hardly concluded it by the time that we reached our destination. Poor devil, he said. Come on, century. Come on, century. Hmm. My, my mistake. After he had listened to my misfortunes. What are you up to now? Uh, looking for lodgings, I answered. Trying to solve the problem as to whether it's possible to get comfortable rooms at a reasonable price. Well, that is a strange thing, remarked my companion. You are the second man today that used that expression to me. Oh, interesting. Who was the first, I asked. A fellow who was working in the chemical laboratory up at the hospital. He was bemoaning himself this morning because he could not get someone to go has with him in some nice rooms which he had found, which were too much for his purse. By Jove, I cried. If you really want someone to share the rooms and the expense, I am the very man for him. I should prefer having a partner being alone. Young Stamford looked rattly strange when he read his wine glass. You know, that look there with glasses. Or wine glass. Why? You don't know Sherlock Holmes yet, he said. Perhaps you did, would not care for him as a constant companion. Now, here we go. Sherlock Holmes has now been mentioned in the book. And the two are destined to meet. You don't know Sherlock Holmes yet, he said. Perhaps you would not care for him as a constant companion. 
Why? What is that against them? What are you saying that for? Oh, I didn't say there was anything against him. He's a little queer in his ideas. Enthusiast in some branches of science. As far as I know, he's a decent fellow enough. A medical student, I suppose, said I. No, I have no idea what he intends to go in for. I believe he's well up in anatomy, and he's a first-class chemist. But, as far as I know, he has never taken out any systematic medical classes. His studies are very desultory and eccentric, but he amassed a lot of out-of-the-way knowledge which would astonish his professors. Yeah, this is definitely Sherlock Holmes. Did you never ask him what he was going in for, did you? No, he's not a man that's easy to draw out, though he can be commutative enough, but the fancy seizes him when, when he desires to speak so. I should like to meet him, I said. If I am to lodge with anyone, I should prefer a man of studious and quiet habits. I'm not strong enough yet to stand much noise or excitement. I had enough of both in Afghanistan to last me for the remainder of my natural existence. How could I meet this friend of yours? Well, he's sure to be at the laboratory. He either avoids the place for weeks or else he works there from morning to night. If you like, we shall drive together after the luncheon. Certainly, I answered, and the conversation drifted away into other channels. As we made our way to the hospital after leaving the Holborn, Snapper gave me a few more particulars about this gentleman who I proposed to take as a fellow lodger. You mustn't blame me if you don't get on with him, he said. I know nothing more of him than I have learned from meeting him occasionally in the laboratory. You're proposed this arrangement, so you must not hold me responsible. If you don't get it on, if we don't get it on it, it'll be easy to part company, I answered. It seems to me, Stamford, I added, looking at the hard companion, hard at my companion, that you have some reason for washing your hands of this matter. Is this fellow's temper so formidable, or what is it? Do you really, don't be mealy about it, just spit it out, damn you. It's not easy to express the inexpressible, he answered with a laugh. Holmes is a little too scientific for my taste. It approaches a too cold bloodiness. I could imagine him his giving a friend a little pinch of the latest vegetable alkaloid. Not out of malevolence, you understand, but simply out of the spirit of inquiry in order to have an accurate idea of the effects. To do to do him justice, I think he would take care of himself with the same readiness. He appears to have a passion for definite and exact knowledge. Now, this is definitely Sherlock Holmes we're talking about here, isn't it, folks? Very right, too. Yes, but it may be pushed to excess. When it comes to being the subjects in the dissecting rooms with a stick, it has certainly taken rather bizarre shape. Beating the subjects? What on earth? Yes, to verify how far the bruising may, may be produced after death. I saw him do it in my very own eyes. And yet you say he's not a medical student. No. Heaven knows what the objects of his studies are. But here we are. I must form your own impressions about him. You see what you get. As he turned down the narrow lane and passed through a small side door, which opened to a wing of the great hospital, it was a familiar ground to me, and I needed no guiding as we ascended the bleak stone staircase and made our way down a long corridor. With its vista of whitewashed walls and dun-colored doors. Near the further end, a low arch passage branched away from it and led to the chemical laboratory. This was a lofty chamber, lined with littered with countless bottles, broad low tables were scattered about, with bristles with retorts, test tubes, and little Bunsen burners with their blue flickering flames. There was only one student in the room who was bending over a distant table absorbed in his work. 
At the sound of our steps, he glanced around and sprang to his feet with a cry of pleasure. I found it! I found it! He shouted to my companion, running toward up, towards us with a test tube in his hand. I found a reagent which is precipitated, precipitated by hemoglobin and nothing else. He had discovered a gold mine. Greater delight could not have been shown upon his features. Dr. Watson, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said Stanford, introducing us. How are you, he said, cordially gripping my hand with a strength for which I should hardly have given him credit. You have been in Afghanistan, I perceive. How on earth did you know that, I asked him in astonishment. Never mind, he said, chuckling to himself. The question is about hemoglobin. No doubt you see the significance of the discovery of mine. It is interesting, chemically, no doubt, I answered, but practically, I don't see it. Why, man, it's the most practical medical legal discovery for years. Don't you see that it gives us an infallible test for blood stains? Come over here now. Talk about taking control right away. <laughs> yes, this is definitely Sherlock Holmes. He seized me by the coat sleeve in his eagerness and drew me over to the table at which he had been working. Let us have some fresh blood, he said, digging up a long bodkin into his finger and drawing off the result, resulting drop of blood in a chemical pipette. Now, I add this small quantity of blood to a liter of water. You perceive what the resulting mixture has the appearance of the true water. The proportion cannot be more than one in a million. I have no doubt, however, that we shall be able to attain the characteristic reaction. As he threw into the vessel a few white crystals and added some drops of transparent fluid, in an instant the contents assumed a dull mahogany color and a brownish dust was precipitated to the bottom of the glass jar. Aha! he cried, clapping his hands with joy as the light of the child and new toy, you know. Aha! What do you think of that? That seems to be a very delicate test, I remarked. Beautiful, beautiful. Your guaycacum test was very clumsy and uncertain. So this microscopic examination of blood corpuscles, corpuscles, the latter is valueless if the stains are a few hours old. Now this appears to act as well as whether the blood is old or new. Had this test been invented, there are hundreds of men who are now walking the earth who would long ago have paid the penalty of their crimes. Indeed, I murmured. And then we had a little drawing over here of uh, Sherlock before he was introduced to uh, Holt, or, uh, Watson and his, through his friend. He's yelling, I found it, I found it, he shouted. It shows, it shows a little breakdown of a small laboratory with an old rickety table and a couple of test tubes and big glass jars and the men are dressed in the, uh, the old 1800, LARP, London, 1800 year London garb. I never pictured Sherlock Holmes look like that, but that's what he is. Holding a test tube and he's all excited. Continuing on. Criminal cases are continually hinging on upon one point. A man is suspect, suspected of a crime months, perhaps after it was committed. His linen or clothes are examined and a brownish stains discovered upon them. Are they blood stains? Are they mud stains? Rust stains or fruit stains? Or what are they? What kind of hell stains are they? That is the question which has puzzled many an expert. And why? Because there is no reliable test. And now we have Sherlock Holmes' test. There will be no longer any difficulty with this. His eyes fairly glittered as he spoke and he put his hand over his heart and bowed as if to some applauding crowd conjured up by his, by his imagination. You are to be congratulated, I remarked considerably, surprised at the enthusiasm. And Sherlock continues, There was a case of the Von Biscoff at Frankfurt last year. 
He would certainly have been hung had, there, had this test been in existence. There was a Mason of Bradford, a notorious Muller of Lefeuve in Montpellier, and Samson in New Orleans. I can name a score of these cases in which they have been decisive. You seem to be walking a calendar of crime, said Stamford with a laugh. You might start a paper on those lines called The Police News of the Past. Very interesting reading it might be, too, replied Sherlock Holmes, sticking a small piece of plaster over the prick of his finger. I have to be careful, he continued, turning to me with a smile, for I dabble with poisons a good deal. He held out his hand as he spoke, and I noticed that it was all malted over with similar pieces of plaster and discovered with strong acid, so he's been doing this little experiment for quite some time. <laughs> we came here on business, said the snapper, sitting down on a three-legged stool and pushing one, another one in my direction with his foot. My friend here wants to take diggings, and as you were complaining that you could not get one to go halves with you, I thought I had better bring you together. Sherlock Holmes seemed delighted at the idea of sharing his room with me. <clears throat> I have my eye in a white on a suit in Baker Street. I have my eye on a suite in Baker Street, he said, which would suit us down to the ground. You don't mind the smell of strong tobacco, I hope. I always smoke just myself, I answered. Well, that's good enough. I generally have chemicals about and occasionally do experiments. Would that annoy you? Ah, by no means at all. Let me see. Hmm. What other shortcomings you got? Well, let's see. I get down that dumps at times. I don't open my mouth for days on end. You must not think I'm sulky when I do that. Just leave me alone, and I'll soon be all right. What do you have to confess now? So the basic saying to uh, Watson, so what's your uh, little idiosyncrasies that i got to be worried about? What have you confessed now? It's just as well for two fellows to know the worst of each other before they begin to live together. I laughed at this cross-examination. I keep a bullpup, I said. I eject to rouse because my nerves are shaken. I get all sorts of ungodly hours. I'm extremely lazy and I have another set of vices well when I'm well. But those are principal ones at present. So he's not telling him everything yet. What are these other set of vices are going to be? Do you include violin playing in your category of rouse, he asked anxiously. It depends on the player, I answered. A well-played violin is a treat for the gods. A badly played one, well, you know, say more. Oh, that's all right, he cried with a merry laugh. I think we may consider the thing is settled. That is, if the rooms are agreeable to you. When shall we see them? Call for me here at noon tomorrow, and we'll go together and settle everything, he answered. All right, noon exactly, as said as shaking his, I said as I was shaking his hand. We left him working among his chemicals, and we walked together by the, toward my hotel. By the way, I asked suddenly, stopping and turning upon Stamford. How did he deduce that he knew I had come out of from Afghanistan? <laughs> and once again, here we go with the how good old Sherlock is. My companion smiled with an egomaniacal smile. That's just his peculiarity, he said. A good many people have wanted to know how he finds these things out. It is a mystery, is it? I cried rubbing my hands. It, this is very piquant. I am much obliged to you for bringing us together. The proper study of mankind is, is man, you know. You must study him then, Stamford said, and he bid me goodbye. You'll find him a naughty problem, though I'll wager he learns more about you than you about him. Good day. Good day, I answered, and he strolled on to my hotel, considerably interested in my new acquaintance. 
So, the meeting has taken place, and Dr. Watson is now becoming partners with Sherlock Holmes. This is getting very, very interesting already. A couple of little things that we didn't know was, uh, one, there was something here, I can't remember what it was, but. Sherlock is very in tuned already into Dr. Watson, and Watson has no idea what he's getting into. So it's going to be very interesting. We'll start uh, now. Every Sunday, I will read a chapter. This is my very first time doing this, so please bear with me. I'm learning as I go. I know I have to slow down when I read. I get too excited with the book as I'm reading along. I find this to be very interesting, very fascinating. I just love it. I hope I, I don't bore you guys to tears too much. And I hope you don't mind me interjecting myself every now and then. But this is why the title is called AJ's Classic Mysteries Crime with the Narrator's Twist. I probably forgot my own title, but who cares? So, that's that. So next Sunday, we'll be having uh, Chapter 2. Of the Study in Scarlet, the very first book written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in the Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson fictional series of the, of the de most famous detective in the world. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.